0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy.
1: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And I'll admit, it's been a while. We've been away. We've been very, very active lately, but we'll get to more of that later. First and foremost, as always, I want to thank our primary sponsor of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast and all of our podcasts here at the Digital 410 Network, ACT Computers. ACT Computers has been providing IT work for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in veterinary clinics, medical clinics, businesses large and small, whether it's a roofing company, air conditioning company, residential computers, network expansion, laptop repair, computer repair, tablet screen repair. You say it, they can do it even expanding your Google Home wireless network. So thanks so much for them. If you need any help with your computers, they can also help you remotely if you're out of state. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 and they can remote into your computer remotely. Hence the name remote. I don't know why I said remote remotely, but it is. They can do it remotely. Also, they do provide antivirus, online backups, two-form authentication for if you're trying to access your server at the uh, at work and don't want to use remote desktop because it's insecure. They can help you all that. Give them a call 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. I want to give you guys a little preview on a project I have been working on for the last two weeks. As you know, if you follow the What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page, you know about, oh, I don't know, a month ago I posted a link to a new air rifle that came out by our friends over at Air Venturi. Air Venturi has teamed up with the fine people at Springfield Armory and Springfield Armory and Air Venturi have just released the new M1 Carbine .177 caliber CO2 BB gun air rifle. Once again, I don't know why I said BB gun air rifle, but BB air rifle. And let me just give you guys a little preview. This thing is beautiful. Um, once again, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, you followed the YouTube channel, you know that a while back, one of our fine listeners gave me a Crossman Air rifle from 1953, 1954. It was an M1 carbine. The thing was cool. It had a little box magazine that held BBs. It had a rear charging handle that would load the BBs one at a time. But this was your more conventional BB gun. You actually had to compress the barrel down into the stock, pull it up. It would load one round. You would shoot it, rinse and repeat. Unfortunately, with the age of it, the gaskets are blown out, so I can't use it. The new Air Venturi Springfield Armory M1 carbine, this thing is authentic. As soon as you pull it out of the box, the first thing you feel is the weight. It Much like the predecessor, not really, it's not even fair to say predecessor because the companies aren't even related. Um, they're just two air rifles that look like the M1 carbine. Um, putting them side by side, the Crossman look, just looks like a toy because that's what it was. But the new Air Venturi Springfield Armory air rifle, it looks like the real deal. I mean, this thing is authentic. comes in a, a synthetic plastic stock or a authentic wooden stock and let me tell you on the wooden stock version the color of the stock the color of the hand grip is spot on to that of a real 75 year old m1 carbine or m1 Garand, for that matter front and rear sights are just like what you see on your m1 carbine it does have left and right um, adjustments on the rear sight but there is no elevation control it's an air rifle what do you expect uh cool thing the magazine is actually where the co2 cartridge goes so it goes into the magazine. You load 15 BBs into it, you seat it in the back, cock the charging handle back, and because this is a CO2 rifle, it does have blowback. And the blowback is, in my mind, the coolest thing because that's what helps with the authenticity of this thing. So as you squeeze off a round, the charging handle blows back just like a real rifle. So it has the weight of a real rifle, it has the box magazine of a real rifle, and more importantly, it does have the rear buttstock sling hole. So you can put an authentic green web sling on it with the oiler it fits right in it does have a bayonet lug on the front unfortunately well let's be honest legally it couldn't fit a bayonet so the bayonet lug is a little too wide for your bayonet to fit on trust me i've tried it but um we shot a video now, i don't want to give too much information away i will say um, one of our fellow reenactors here locally joseph brought out his uh, 1943 willie ford jeep i was going to say willies but it's a ford and he also brought out his airborne edition carbine so I was able to take the new Air Venturi M1 car beam and compare it to a real car beam. Now, obviously, I know the Airborne has a phoning stock, so that's not the same. But everything else is the same. And side by side, barrel length, the same. handguards are the same length. The weight, everything. This thing is spot on. This is a beautiful, beautiful air rifle. If you guys are air rifle fans or your children are, if you have a young child who's not only into air rifles but loves World War II-based stuff, this thing is for him. Um, if even if you're not an air rifle guy, but you collect World War II era firearms, this thing's a must-have for your collection. It's just, it's just so damn cool. You look at it, you pull it out, and from a distance, if you're not really paying attention to, you know, the the white stamping on the charging handle, it looks like the real deal. And as you get up close to it, you look at it, say, oh wow, this is a BB, it's. I just can't say enough about how cool this thing is, and I'm just super excited, and I can't express the thanks to the fine people at Springfield Armory and the fine people at Air Venturi. After I posted the link, I just took a shot in the dark. I said, you know what? I'm going to reach out to Springfield Armory and ask them if they can send me one. Why not? Not one to keep. I'm not that greedy. I told them I would mail it back after I'm done. Sadly, I really don't want to. And between me and you, the serial number on this thing is number 29. So I really want to keep it now. But anyhow, they sent me one. I shot the video. They've been super, super accommodating. They've been answering any questions I've had. The fine people over at Air Venturi have been so accommodating, they were willing to send me CO2 cartridges, BBs, and all these other things. I said, no, I'll take care of all that. I'm, I don't want to overextend my welcome. I don't want to abuse your hospitality. Send me the rifle. I'll take care of the rest. The rifle's here. It's beautiful. Took it out. Had a fun time shooting it. Really don't want to send it back, but I'm going to have to because that's part of the agreement. And, uh, yeah, so look out for that YouTube video coming up. And, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it on this show in a while we do have a legitimate youtube channel title now it is digital 410 so just go to youtube.com search for digital 410 or go to wtspworldwar2.com find the video i think there's a video on the right hand side of me um one um actually it's when we were out at the hilton doing the um, army dance click on that you can subscribe click on the bell and then you'll get the notifications or the easiest way to find our videos just get the plugs out of the way when you're at WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the link on the right-hand side, sign up for the Patreon account, just sign up for the dollar month plan, and um, it'll give you, whenever I post new videos, whether they're exclusive content for the people at Patreon and our Patreon members, or if they're public videos, I always post them on the Patreon page, so that one, you have an easy way to get to them without having to dig through YouTube, and two, you'll get an email notification from Patreon anytime something's posted. So, uh, you want to support the channel? Please uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, become a Patreon member, and as you know, you can always get t-shirts at WTSPWorldWar2.com. I'm going to put up a new one here soon. We still do have the Lucky Strikes uh, t-shirt. It's funny, I was actually at the flea market today, I found a very cool 1950s, 1960s, all wooden Miller High Life beer peanut dispenser in the uh, yard sale aisle. And as I'm walking down, I have on my WTSP Lucky Strikes shirt, and the guy's like, what's your shirt say? I said, it says the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast in stereo. He said, oh, I thought it was a Lucky Strike shirt when you're walking up. I said, well, that's what I was going for when I made it, so thank you. So if you want to confuse people at the flea market with your very own t-shirt, go to wtspworldwar2.com, click on the merch link, and buy your own t-shirt. And last but not least, if you are active like me and you're working out, or you had kids who are athletic or in football, go to Sleeves.com, S-L-E-E-F-S.com. Anything you buy, use the promo code D41040 at checkout, and you will save 40%. I think that covers all the plugs. Very excited. Joining us on the phone, coming up here momentarily, he was a pilot for the 398th Bomber Group in World War II, Mr. Keith Anderson. Mr. Anderson, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. First and foremost, let me thank you for your time, for coming on our show, and taking time out of your schedule. I greatly appreciate it. It's a like you that allow me to share your history with our listening audience and to educate the up-and-coming generations on the um, sacrifices and the um, trials and tribulations that your generation went through to uh, make our freedoms possible today. So first and foremost, thank you for your time and thank you for everything you've done for us.
0: You're very welcome.
1: Well, let's go back to the beginning, if you don't mind. Where we tend to start all this, first and foremost, is... Uh, We'll go back a little bit to Pearl Harbor. Do you remember where you were at during Pearl Harbor?
0: I was a freshman at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And uh, they didn't uh, permit uh, fraternities and sororities at Reed. They had living groups instead. And they were just independent to the college. And uh, I lived in a a long structure with several, what they called houses in them. The building was probably 1,000 feet long or more. And it was uh, divided. The uh, east end was male living groups, and uh, the yeah. other end was female. These houses were about were three stories, and each wing of those two wings, men and women, they were further divided by uh, just partition walls. Inside of each, and there were two or three rooms on each floor. Well, I came in and bounded gagged us all individually in bed. They living groups, and they called houses. I lived at the time in what was called Doyle House. Uh, it's a long story, but we'd had, a, over the years, some of these houses uh, accumulated symbols of their house. And our house was, a, the symbol was an owl. They called it the Doyle House Owl. And uh, one of the other houses uh, in our wing uh, came in and stole our owl. Then on Sunday evening, we had uh, it was custom to have an open house for you to invite all the college to come to your house and chit chat
1: kind of a way to um, encourage new freshmen and in- that to come per- possibly join your house.
0: Um, no, it was just a, a, a safe social occasion to get to know other members of the other houses. Would come and visit you. Sure. There's just a fairly a, a social um, expanding your membership of the your class. I got you. At any rate, they had stolen our owl, so they were having an open house, and it turned out to be the day of Pearl Harbor, which we didn't know was coming. Going to be there. We all knew the war was coming, but. So they uh, invited us to their open house, which is going to be on Sunday, December 7th, 1941. And uh, so we, we knew that they were going to feature our owl at the, at the um, uh, open house. So we wanted to steal it back before they could show it off. So we uh, assembled a bunch of friends on the campus and and stormed their house physically, battering our way up to the second floor where where the owl would be on display. And somebody came and said that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor.
1: Well, that put an end to our
0: raid on their
1: house right away. Your owl was abducted by uh, the fellow house on campus. They secured it up in the second floor of their home. You guys put together a rescue team. You got some battery rams because, you know, this is your mascot. This represents you, your house, and what you guys are all about. And they they abducted it. And so as far as you guys were concerned, the only thing that mattered at that point in time was the uh, retrieval of your beloved owl. And as you're in the middle of literally taking a ram and barging your way into their, their home, or their house to uh, acquire your stolen property. That's when news came down to you guys that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor, and it's amazing. Right. It's amazing how quickly your priorities change, and how much something that you thought was very important, that your entire existence relied on it, now meant nothing because something far more important uh, just happened. And it just—it's amazing how that changes um, a young person's priority.
0: Well. To an extent that's true, but you have to realize that Pearl Harbor wasn't a a total surprise. We'd had negotiations and all kinds of things with Japan leading up to that time. So while uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor itself was unexpected, an altercation with Japan was not unexpected.
1: Yeah, because part of Japan's deception policy at that point was we were actually getting ready to sit down and kind of not really come up with a peace treaty, but come up with a neutrality treaty saying, hey, you know, you mind your own, we'll mind ours. And they were kind of just playing along to keep us off guard because they knew they were planning this attack. And so like you said, it really wasn't um, unforeseen that this may happen because we've had issues with the empire, the, the Japanese empire, but they were kind of playing um, a smokescreen tactic by pretending that they were going to sit down and sign this treaty with us, and then they bombed us.
0: Yeah, well, that's true. So the bombing, of course, was, and particularly the Pearl Harbor, uh, was totally unexpected. At any rate, it put an end to, to our rage to recover our owl. Very soon. And no. from then on, me's the inclination is to go down and join the army to fight the Japanese. But, uh, uh and some of the folks did that right away. But, uh, most of us, feeling the war was coming on, had already started thinking about how we were going to end up serving our country.
1: Before we move on into your enlistment into the military, um, just for our listeners' sake, out of the sense of patriotism and solidarity, did the other house relinquish your owl back to you?
0: <laughs> did we ever what?
1: Did they ever give you your owl back to you out of a sense of patriotism and solidarity as a single nation after the bombing? Did they, well, they did give they, us back did, our owl? Did they give it back that to that
0: you? It's been stolen several times since then. It became practically it.
1: Tradition. I'm just picturing this in a movie sense, and in, in the movie, I think to get everybody on the side of everyone, you would have that scene where the the head of the other house would come down the stairs and say, "You know what? It's not worth it," and just hands the owl over to you guys, and then and then you go on to deal with uh, enlisting into the Marines or the Army or to the Army Air Corps or, or what have you. So I just wanted to find out if you guys did, in fact, get the owl back.
0: Yeah, uh, they had their they ended up having their oil their open house that night and i think presented us back but we didn't get it back from our raid no
1: yeah
0: at any rate our individual focus then was stimulated to decide how you individually were going to participate in the war and a friend of mine and i is Of course, the Navy was very active recruiting in the Northwest all along. For some reason, the Navy never did appeal to me. My dad had been in the Army as a truck driver, and mechanic, and so I was geared towards serving in the Army like my dad had been. And uh, most of my focus was on the Army friend of mine and I, had, neither one of us had done any private flying. I'd built a few model airplanes uh, when I was in school, but I'd never, never dreamed of being a pilot. But we decided, the two of us, to join the Army Air Force. So we went down to the Portland Army Air Base and, and enlist. In the U.S. Army Air Force, but at that time, of course, the country was going from practically zero military to a, what was certain, soon to be a 13 million or more men
1: in, that belonged to one of the services. Yeah, because after World War One, quote unquote, the war to end all wars, we were kind of you know basically the Marine Corps was the only Real branch that had any sort of funding. That's why they got sent down to the Philippines and to um, land on Guadalcanal. And you're absolutely right, because of the fatigue, if you will, of the American people after World War One, they just we had no desire to participate in any sort of conflict. Which is why we, up until this point, were pr- pretty much only participating in the war through the lend-lease program. But we actually, as you said, our, our military was at an all-time low, really, at that point, with the exception of the funding for the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps was still using rifles and gears that their fathers used in World War One. They were still using 1903 bolt-action rifles, and now here we are, we get sucker-punched, kind of, by the Japanese, and now we realize, okay, um, participating in the war strictly by lending jeeps and tanks and weaponry and uniforms to the Allies, that's not going to cut it anymore. Now we really need to turn up our engines, if you will, and put together multiple branches of the military to help protect our country and to participate in the overall war.
0: Well, and particularly in the Northwest, which felt more of a kinship towards Hawaii than most of the country did. So remember Pearl Harbor became a real uh, motto, uh, track is a great following here. At any rate, my partner, my buddy and I had uh, joined the uh, uh, Air Force at Pearl Harbor as aviation cadets. Why we had settled on aviation cadets, I'm not sure, but we did. And uh, of course the massive influence of, of uh, volunteers at that time, and the armed services weren't able to cope with all of them, train them all at once. So um, they just put you on a waiting list. And uh, the months rolled by, and we are getting more involved in the war all the time from a military standpoint, and particularly with the Navy, which, you know, close to the Northwest here. The months rolled by and school seemed less relevant studying ancient history than did participating in the war. So we were getting pretty antsy. And then all of a sudden, in February of 42, I got orders, U.S. Army Air Force, to be, and they were addressed not to an aviation cadet, but to private first class Keith Billy Anderson. Well, that was my first kind of a shock with the military or I enlisted to be an aviation cadet. And what had happened? I found out with this great influence of, of people joining the Air Force to be pilots or navigators or whatever, they were getting so many fellows in all at once and they were having a very high washout rate. People that just couldn't learn to fly soon enough and and well enough. So they devised this program which they put into play. We we were the first group that was in an air training program as a butt private And and they sent you to college uh, there was a five-month college course for aviation cadet training.
1: You made reference to the high washout rate back then um, at the time. Um, just for the edification for our audience, we got to remember back then um, we didn't have the um, vitamins, the proteins, the the health regimen we have now and the technology to maintain one's vision. Um And so back then, a lot of people were colorblind. Their vision wasn't as well as it is today. Obviously, we didn't have corrective surgery like we have now. And so um, one of the leading factors or two leading factors, I would assume, and you could tell me, is one, people's vision. But let's also keep in mind that um, these planes back then, the navigational systems were the top of their time, but compared to nowadays, they're very rudimentary. And correct me if I'm wrong. You guys had to be pretty good with math, especially when it came to navigating and um, using basically to know where you are on the globe when you're in flight. Correct? Well, there was a lot to learn
0: uh, in ground school, but just the flying itself, uh, learning to the skills of landing and uh, bad weather. Night, uh, a lot of people just couldn't, couldn't take the pressure of learning the act of flying itself. So there was the ground school that some of them couldn't cope with and the actual flying. Now, washout came from the flying generally.
1: Now, do you remember the first time you went up in an airplane, the, the feeling you had, the sensation you got, and was there any part of it that made you say, I really want to do this, or was there a part you said, whoa, well, I don't know if I can handle this?
0: No, I, it, I didn't wonder if I could handle it. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I, I can sort of remember that first flight, but I didn't come down particularly exhilarated because by then, I've been in. Well, let me back up to get that. Those uh, college training attachments. Sure. When they first started the program, they uh, on the basis of testing that they did and on your previous record, they divided you into five groups. One group in which would graduate each month, and and from then or after all the groups would go for five years in the college training attachment. So I'd just come out of college and I was passing high grades and all the tests they were giving me. So I was put in the second group. At that time, the Air Force was graduating one class per month, or approximately one per month. About 10 or 11 per year.
1: Can you remember off the top of your head how many uh, cadets were in each class that graduated each month? No. Okay. I was just, no, I,
0: I don't. Okay. I was just uh, trying
1: to do the math, to, to try to figure out how long it would take for us to uh, fulfill the need for pilots at that time. Because obviously we were in a big hurry. However, if we're doing one a month, obviously they had the numbers sorted out so, so that uh, we could sustain the need that we had for um, our pilots, I was just curious. Okay, they
0: had the air command divided into three sections, the Pacific coast, the Midwest, and the East coast. And each one of them had their own cadet programs and they operated separately from each other from an operational standpoint. So at any rate, when I finally got my orders, it came through the private T.W. Anderson. And rather than go to the Pacific Coast Command, I was assigned to the Midwest Command, which was headquartered in a Randolph Field in Texas. And uh, I was disappointed, but there wasn't anything I could do about it except go on with the flow. First of all, the idea was you'd get one month of basic military training before you even went to five months of college. So my initial assignment was Buckley Field in Denver, Colorado. So when I got my first orders, I was a private and I was being sent to Buckley Field in Denver, Colorado. Um up to that point I'd been thinking in terms of the Pacific Command, which was centered out of Southern California, and Santa Ana was the focal point for the Pacific Coast Chinese command. I forget which what the East Coast was. Some airbase down in Florida. At any anyway, rate, there I was uh first to Denver, Colorado, and then sent out to uh, my first college, my college training detachment that I was assigned to, was at Southwest Missouri State Teachers College. And I was put in the second graduating class. As I said, they had a class of pilots, navigators, bombardiers, for some reason, weather officers and a few other officer groups, once you started training, you were going into one specialty to another. After a week in Denver and two months in Missouri, I was sent to Randolph Field in Texas, and that's where they made assignments into the training command. We took a lot of tests, physical tests, mental tests and so forth. And uh, each day they would come out with a list of who went where. And uh, I was down there about a week and I hadn't, my name hadn't come up on any list at all and would not talk to anybody. And all of a sudden there is on the list, and I'm assigned to class 44B, which would be the second graduating class um, of 1944. By the time I term came to go to, to start out student aviation routine, they were getting ready to send out class 44A, and all of a sudden they'd end up short of people from 44B, so they had to take some of those fellows and move them into 44A. Well, I'd been just on the borderline between the two. So I ended up actually joining and, and becoming an aviation cadet with a class of 44A. At that time, there were three phases of training for pilots. One was uh, primary flight training, basic flight training, and advanced flight training about two months each, so it was close to a nine-month process. In primary training, you started out with a single engine Fixed wing, fixed landing gear, training plane. A lot of them were the popular steering, twin wing airplane. A lot of cadets learned to fly in those. Had Fairchild PT-19s. PT standing for primary trainer. And 19 was the designation. So I learned to fly basic flying in that landing, taking off, at aerobatics, precision flying over the ground for navigation training purposes, and that was an intense course, one half a day of flying and one half a day of ground school, and the ground school subjects you were studying were compatible with the flying training you were getting, night flying navigation, and then basic military training in the ground school.
1: And I'm sure as you're doing your in-flight training in your Fairchild PT-19, the brass and those who are in charge of the training are probably assessing which pilots would be best as a uh, fighter pilot, which pilot would be best as a bomber pilot.
0: Well, they were just concerned with teaching you their, their phase of the training. Now the selection became between, say, somebody destined to be a fighter pilot and somebody to be a bomber pilot was when you went from basic to advanced flying training.
1: If you were going to be
0: a fighter pilot, you just continued with a single engine airplane, AT-6, which is still, they're still flying AT-6. All around the country, you got to actually make a decision whether you wanted to go to single engine advanced or multi engine advanced. Multi engine obviously has two engines on up. You just practice, for the not going to fly in the 20s America.
1: What was the deciding factor for you to go with the dual engine advance as opposed to the single engine advance? What what attracted you to being a uh, to going up in the bombers opposed to the the fighter planes?
0: Well, I didn't know much about fighter planes except I knew about the P thirty eight because they were flying all around the northwest during the first two years of the war. So I was familiar with the P thirty eight and it had twin engines, and I decided I want to be a B-38 pilot, so I better go to twin engine. Turns out that wasn't the best way to get into p 38s but at any rate, that was my thinking at the time. Uh, I didn't know much about airplanes at all. I knew a B-17, naturally, built in Seattle. And I knew there was bombers and fighters, but I didn't know the slightest idea, of what was involved in with each. When my time came, I selected twin engine advance, and I ended up at Lubbock Field in uh, Western Texas. And that's where I actually finally graduated and got my wings. And uh, on January seventh of nineteen forty-two um along with getting your wings having a ceremony where they pinned them on you and so forth you got orders to your next position which was uh um forget what they call it it was an assignment center which where you went out as a brand new second lieutenant brand new pilot
1: the replacement
0: depot yeah replacement depot right First of all, you were given a 30-day leave at home and then sent to a, what was called a rec, rest and recuperation center. Where after all of your, the pre, and there was a lot of pressure on during flying training. Uh, you were supposed to be able to get rested and recuperated from that rigorous training. And there you would also, get your first assignment for actual tactical training. So uh, I was sent to Salt Lake City, Colorado, which was a replacement kit center for the West Coast. That well, maybe it was for everybody. I, I don't really remember that now. I know there were hundreds of guys that were uh, assigned to Salt Lake City Replacement Depot. And with nothing to do except you know, sit around and play cards and tell stories. Um give us some rudimentary training.
1: At the time, were you a better card player or a storyteller?
0: <laughs> well, I was a pretty good card player. I learned from
1: my, my dad. What was the game of choice at the time? What were you guys playing? Poker. So, you were able to hold your own and poker and not lose all your pay?
0: Yeah. Nice. I held my
1: own. There you go.
0: But I had only been there about two weeks. And most of the fellows were there for a month or more. What they would do there at the replacement dip. they would take, like for bombers, a B 17 or a B 24, which had 10 man crews, they'd assemble, they had the uh, uh, navigators coming into replacement depot, bombardiers, and gunners. And they would assemble those into combat crews and then train them off, send them off for further training as a crew in a specific airplane they were going to fly. So i have only been there about a week or two, and another fellow and I, from my graduating class at Lubbock, Called, they were given orders, just the two of us, to report to the 398 bomb group in Rapid City, South Dakota. So we got a speed up right there. We didn't go through the uh, original, ordinary process of having uh, once in a tactical airplane we were going to fly.
1: So basically at this point they're going to streamline your training and you're basically going to get the, uh, the fast track and not get the um, the in-depth, well, consistent training. That... Fast
0: track. It was faster than fast track. because <laughs> so, we found out, that the 398th bomb group had just gotten head sorters to join the 8th uh, Air Force in England. They had been serving as a year as a training group which was training uh, other groups that were heading over none of them had been overseas themselves but they were always all experienced people and so 398 Bomb group uh, had just received in uh, january its orders to join the air force in England, now, they weren't fully banned at the time. So they had to bring in a bunch of people like me last minute. And uh, lo and behold, I found out that all of a sudden, from a place of people in any training in a tactical airplane, I was being sent right through a bomb group on its way overseas and uh, quite an acceleration we were the very last b-17 group assigned at the eighth air force now at that time the last year of the war there were 30 bomb groups in the eighth air force i may, may may have been 32 i think there were 32 Divided into three divisions, the first, the second, and the third division. The first division uh, was B-17 groups only, the second division was B-24 groups, and the third division was a mixture of both
1: of them. Had you had any experience on the B-24, or did you strictly work and train with the B-17s?
0: I never had been into a B-24 until after the war. And I, I was happy I was in a B-17 group for many reasons thereafter. But, uh, at any rate, here I graduated January 7th, and in February I was always, always already assigned to a bomb group as a, uh, on way overseas. And I was very lucky when once I got there. When I was there, I was assigned immediately to a crew, an existing crew. And it turned out to be the leading pilot and the lead crew of the whole group. So from the beginning of the join when I joined that group, I was in a very select company. Pilot, at that time, was only a second lieutenant still, but he had over a thousand hours of B-17 time and a lot of hours prior to that as a civilian. He was also 25 years old, which is as old as you could be to start off flight training at that time, and I was 17. But uh, he had a world of experience and uh, so I came right under his tutelage, and uh, I was a very lucky guy. Uh, my career from then on.
1: Now, correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but you were one of the youngest guys in your group, were you not?
0: Yes, I was. My birthday was in March, so we actually flew overseas in late March, '43. any rate. One day at Rapid City, there were some brand-new, right-off-the-line B-17s sitting there <clears throat> waiting for us. Each crew was assigned an airplane of its own. And immediately we went and painted ours up and named it. And so far,
1: Do you remember what you guys named it? Yeah, they named it Anytime Annie. <laughs> After the, the girlfriend was
0: some guy, some one of the gunners on the crew. And uh, the interesting thing is that we flew those airplanes over to England. And uh, two days later, they were all gone. <laughs> we had brand new airplanes. Just used to fly them overseas because they still had to go through a, a modification center in England uh, to get it up to snuff for combat. I understand that at that time uh, the manufacturers would every now and again completely revamp their airplane. So, and with what, what they call a the new model, and we had a brand new model G. A, a, B, C, D, E, F, G model of the B-17. And, but even then, in combat, things progressed so rapidly. They'd have to make changes. Uh, they decided they were gonna change, make a modification to the airplane right away. They had modification centers right in England where they would send the airplane um, and get it prepared for combat. So they took our brand new Anytime Any away from us and uh, it went to Modification Center and eventually was assigned a group. And I read later that it was shot down on about a 45th mission over the North Sea. <laughs> so, Anytime time Annie didn't last too long. Um, from then on, we didn't bother naming our airplanes. We also found out that as a lead crew, you flew special airplanes. For one thing, they were equipped with radar. All the airplanes weren't equipped with radar at that time. Uh, and they had special bomb sites and Specialists and that. So uh, each airplane, each group had six or seven lead airplanes, and then the lead crews would fluctuate flying on those lead airplanes.
1: Now I understand you quickly learned there was a disadvantage almost to being a co pilot in the lead airplane, and when that happened, um, an NCO or a um, Member higher up would oftentimes take your seat, and you were relegated to being a, a, a observer to the tail gunner. Is that correct?
0: Well, yeah. I soon found out, and I wasn't very happy about it, that the uh, co-pilot on the lead crew was replaced by generally a senior officer. Our group commander was a full colonel, and he flew several missions with us with him sitting in the copa seat, me flying as a tail gunner. And I wasn't very happy about being killed as a tail gunner
1: after I'd been, spent all that time learning how to fly. You just went from seeing what's going on to watching what just happened out the back and staring at the faces of the gentleman flying behind you. Now, <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it was a good place to be because I later on I saw a lot of airplanes blow up tail used to come off intact and flutter down on its own and often you see one one figure jump out of there and open a chute and uh, no chutes coming out of the main section of the airplane. So from that aspect you know the tail gunner was, was a favorable
1: from a logistical standpoint, was the escape hatch closer to the tail or to the uh, cockpit of the plane? You could yeah, get to it quicker. The escape
0: hatch for the tail gunner was its own escape hatch right next to the tail gunner.
1: So we could get out of there in
0: It was just very easy just kick the hatch open and jump.
1: Were there any times during the war that that you had to evacuate your plane or your plane didn't make it home from a mission?
0: We had an engine catch fire uh, as we were climbing to altitude and the engines had a built-in fire extinguisher system, but we actuated that and it didn't work and it kept burning and we decided it was going to plane was going to blow up any minute you better get the hell out of there so we we all jumped and uh, i remember I, I was supposed to be i was a tail gunner on that mission so i went out the tail with the uh, three other gunners we all jumped together and we could talk to each other on the way, all the way down And uh, we did. And all of a sudden, we hit the ground. I remember that landed a lot harder than I thought it would be. I was trying to judge when I was going to hit the ground.
1: Now, when you're in a situation like that, is jumping probably not even a concern at that point? I guess in the forefront of your mind, you're thinking, okay, this plane's going down. Either I stay here and probably die, or I jump out of the plane and most likely survive. But I guess it happens so quickly, you probably don't really get a chance to register the idea before you even jump out that plane. It's just probably instinct at that point, fight or flight.
0: Well, I was never afraid of having to bail out. I always figured the shoe would open and uh, from then on it'd be unknown, but so was, by then you're so used to having getting shot at or getting killed in multiple ways that not too selective. So I was I didn't have any hesitancy about getting out of that airplane.
1: Now, when you landed, did you have the luxury of landing over friendly territory, or did you go down over enemy territory, or was it neutral?
0: No, no we, we knew we were over friendly territory. We, we knew we were still over England, and uh, so that was not a concern.
1: So once you and your, your two gunners landed, and you basically, I guess the first thing you have to figure out where you're at, obviously you knew you in England, but not sure where you're at, how do you go about uh, getting back home? You just find the, the nearest village and send out communication, or or what's the process of the uh, recovery for that?
0: Well, we all saw each other land, or we were close enough, so we got together, by the way. And I just, we were in somebody's, ended up in somebody's yard, so I knocked on their door, told them what we were, who we were, what we were doing They said, well, there's an RAF pilot lives down the street. Why don't you go see him? So I did that. I went down there. He was having breakfast. So He says, "Uh, says, uh, you should wait for me to finish breakfast. I'll try to (laughs) my field. He said, okay. Turns out he was a test pilot. And I forget the name of the field now. But it was their equivalent of right field in this country he took us to field and I phoned our base to tell them where we were and they said they'd send an airplane down to pick us up which only what we did and
1: now how many times there
0: I see these airplanes taxiing by with no propeller and a lot of heat waves coming out from the rear. Well, I'd never even heard of a jet airplane by then. Never even heard of it that I remember. So, they were the first English jet, and I forget the sequence of events by then. But by then we knew that the Germans had a jet airplane whatever that was. And uh, we should see them occasionally. And here was the British an- answer to the German shot, but they were way far behind.
1: It was the Gloucester Meteor, I believe, was the first British... It was.
0: It was, it was, it was the Gloucester Meteor. It was uh, the... Uh, How, the short point.
1: What was your impression when you heard that thing take off? Because clearly the... The audible output of a jet engine is far, far superior than that of a prop plane. I mean, just the, the noise those things put off. What was your first impression when you when you saw that thing taxiing out on the runway?
0: Well, they did make a lot of noise taxiing. And it took so long to take off that they were practically out of sight down the end of the runway. By the time they got off the ground, you couldn't hear them
1: anymore. So I didn't have any pressure at all. Oh, I got you. Now, during the war, how many times did your um, aircraft, or how many aircraft did you lose due to mechanical failure?
0: Well, that was the only time I had to bail out of an airplane. It was the only time I remember not being able to take off.
1: Now, I understand mm-hmm. you flew about seven missions or so as a tail gunner. In that time, did you ever have to engage the enemy with your uh, your machine gun?
0: No, I never, I never had to actually fire that machine gun. I did fire it. The airplanes so far away that I could barely see them, just so I could say I would shot at a German airplane.
1: <laughs> but uh, sure, no, I, uh,
0: I didn't have any occasions other than that. Um, and you're right. I did end up flying seven or eight missions as a tail gunner. I forget now just how many, but uh, I, I flew my most biggest missions as a tail gunner. Now, another thing I should explain. When we first got over there, uh, then the uh, 8th Air Force had developed its tactics pretty well. And they'd finally settled on 36 airplane group. as an ideal bomb group. 36 airplanes in a formation.
1: Yeah, I believe um, in a past interview, you said you guys had 12 ships to a squadron and three squads to a group.
0: We flew with four squadrons. You had uh, an echelon of three airplanes or, and, and one tail. You had a V plane, right wing, left wing, and tail. That would be a four-plane unit. And with a 12-group formations, we would fly four of those. Uh, pretty much after D-Day.
1: Now, speaking of D-Day, I understand that uh, right on Operation Overlord, that the uh, 600th Bomb Group participated in um, bombing and attacking coastal defenses of the enemies on... Uh, the Cherresburg Peninsula. Did you participate in that during D-Day? We were bombing the beach. We carried one hundred pound bombs that day,
0: and they were designed not to blow up things as much as to create foxholes. Was sure. to have something to jump into.
1: Yeah, that's what a lot of people don't realize. Part of the strategic planning for the D-Day invasion was to have you guys lay bombs onto the beach to create craters, as you just said to allow the gentleman to get below the surface line to, to get take cover from the enemy machine gun fire.
0: That was our function of our group. Now, different groups had different functions. Sure. That,
1: now, on D-Day,
0: we flew just six ship formations. That, that was the only day, time I ever flew in a six-ship bombing mission. Um,
1: was the Flak fire real bad on that day, or were they pretty much caught off guard?
0: There was, I did see a burst of black in the sky that day. They were concentrating on any heavy enough artillery they had available was concentrated on the shooting of our fleet, our invasion fleet. We were just a nuisance of stars. They were concerned. No. It was D-Day.
1: Now speaking of flak, the first time you experience flak—is it so what can you compare it to? I mean, probably very little. I mean, is it like obviously you have shrapnel penetrating your plane, but when those bursts go off, do they create blast waves that create turbulence, or is it just simply the the shrapnel penetrating your plane? An eighty-eight
0: shell uh, would blow a plane apart. They had 88, 90, and a hundred and fifty-five. I think. So even an ADH shell would, could do more than just create the fragments, the shell fragments. It would just blow a whole airplane, or blow the nose off, blow the whole air, airplane
1: up. Flak did a lot of different things. But luckily, for the grace of God during D-Day and during your mission to provide foxholes for the uh, upcoming landing invasion, luckily you guys didn't have to deal with flak. Was, for you on that day, was it pretty much a straightforward mission, or did you guys have any issues that you had to overcome?
0: No, it was a pretty much sort of a straightforward mission. We didn't even get shot at. I don't think we saw a burst of plaque
1: in the air, even. And those are the um, missions that you mark down as the, the best ones to go on, obviously, because uh, you get out there, you do what you're uh, told to do, and everybody gets home safe, and you uh, get to fly a, another day.
0: Yeah. In fact, originally we were going to fly two missions on D-Day. For some reason, they called off the second one. So we just came home and turned on the radios and listened to how the invasion was going.
1: Now, I understand prior—we're going we're gonna to back up a little bit. I, I understand prior to the D-Day invasions, one of your all's first missions was to drop bombs on uh, the manufacturing plants of the V-1 flying bombs that the Germans were creating— but um, that mission didn't really go as planned, correct?
0: I'll back up a little bit.
1: Sure. Our very
0: first mission that we flew was
1: uh,
0: May 6, 1942. And uh, it was to bomb a buzz bomb facility on the French coast. And when we first got there, we didn't know anything at, at all about buzz bombs. Now, we didn't even drop our bombs at that one. Our second mission was to Berlin, and uh, uh, that turned out to be not much of anything either for us. Berlin was one of the toughest targets there in Germany, but a lot, a lot of the war was just the luck of the draw. Now, let me explain one, one thing. We prided ourselves on flying good, tight formations, figuring that the Germans, well, I'm sure it was true, they would rather fly through a loose formation than the one that was where the airplanes were all close together and had a lot of machine guns. You realize there were 13 or 14 50 caliber machine guns on the B side of Ding. It was just bruised with armament, so they could send up a lot of shell. When you had the airplanes flying close together, it just made a more concentrated area of uh, machine gun bullets. The Germans had to fly it through to get to us, and the fruit were all spread apart.
1: Well, it always amazed me how well your gunners did. Um, flying in this tight formations, and especially when you know, under attack by the Germans and the Messerschmitts, how well they did um, not hitting friendly, you know, their other comrades, the other planes. I mean, you guys are in close formations. They're trying to um, lead the target, if you will, as the enemy planes flying. But they also got to be mindful of the fact that there's so many other B-17s around them. It always amazed me how well they did it not, you know, accidentally shooting one another and taking friendly Uh fire. Still amazes me, yeah.
0: Yeah, we used to think the same thing, but uh, that was another story. I don't know of any instances we had where we thought one of our airplanes had been shot down by another airplane in the formation. Yeah, it's remarkable.
1: Would you say that your flight over Berlin was one of your toughest assignments, or was there another one that stands out in your mind as being one of the hardest... um... Assignment you had to complete?
0: Well, I went there three times. I don't remember the first two specifically, except we didn't get shot at. It. Our airplane wasn't shot at much. But the third one was my third one from last, and that in itself was significant because I didn't have too many more to survive to get home. So I so, boy, I not want to get shot down over Berlin. And three of the lead planes in groups ahead of us got shot down. And I, I was mindful of that when we went over. But uh, fortunately, we got through that unscathed also.
1: Did your group participate in the support during Operation Market Garden?
0: yeah. We did, and I, and I did too. Uh,
1: what was your key role on that day? What was the main target? Were you guys going after gun emplacements? Were you uh, bombing um, manufacturing plants? What was the key role for your uh, providing support during Market Garden?
0: Well, I don't I don't remember specifically what we were. I I think we were just bombing troops or groups of trucks or
1: power stations, railroad bridges, and basically anything that would help uh, interrupt the logistics yeah. of the German army.
0: Right. Mainly we were after trying to kill German troops, as I remember. But you have the lead airplane. You have the pilot of the lead airplane. Now, a lead airplane flew mostly on autopilot. You just... Turned on the autopilot when you took off Mm -hmm. and kept it tuned in from the the rest of the mission. So it wasn't particularly fatiguing to sit there and dial, twist knobs instead of fighting those big controls. So you didn't have to have a co-pilot to off with. That's why the the mission commander would sit in the co-pilot seat because he didn't have to fly at all, just sit there on the radio and command. So in September, our squadron commander got promoted. So my pilot, Gene Devis, became squadron operations officer. And I ended up with the crew commander. Actually, at the same time, by then we'd gotten a lot of, Replacement crews in, and replacement crews, you'd have an experienced pilot fly with them uh, for their first two missions. So by September, I was doing mostly that, and a few times they sent me along as the squadron command pilot. Now, you had your lead squadron. With the group commander or the lead pilot of the mission and the group navigator or the group bombardier or the representative. And then each the e squadron had its, so the high and the low had its uh, commanders. So I was doing a few, a little bit of each. I was flying a new cruise uh, on our first two missions. I flew with about six or seven new crews on their first two missions. I flew a couple times with our old crew and my pilots was the squadron commander. So I did quite a bit of that. And then uh, September, October, November, things settled down. November, my pilot was leading our group on a mission. He got shot down, and it uh, came and the navigator with him, and they both were survived and became POWs. We were at the same camp together, and about that time, I I became I was promoted uh, to uh, becoming a flight commander. That was just a wasn't a rank. It was just a from then on, I only flew on late airplanes, either as a pilot or as a squadron command pilot. Sure. I flew several missions as a squadron command pilot through December, January. On January 23rd, our uh, Colonel, Colonel Hunnell shot down and killed, and, uh, and we we had a couple of good, capable squadron commanders. Instead of uh, turning the group over to one of them, they brought in a guy from staff, a uh, lieutenant colonel. ensign was his name, and uh, he'd flown a couple of missions with us earlier. This is sort of a tag along. First thing he did was when he took over from Colonel Hunter. And all we didn't worship Colonel Hunter, but all of us really liked him. Uh, we thought he was a good, good commanding officer. And this guy sort of ragged him and pretty soon everybody hated him, Lieutenant Colonel Hanson. But about that time after December, a few of us that had been with the group for a long time, at least since it been overseas, started thinking ahead to the time the war would be over and we would go to Japan. So we decided we wanted to stick together. And uh, during January, there were a few of us flew in the, at all. By that time, you we were uh, in that squadron where you we were Determining when when you flew or not, you appointed yourself as either a pilot or the command pilot. So if you didn't appoint yourself, you didn't have to go. And uh, when Colonel Hunter got killed uh, and replaced by Anson, all of that changed. We wanted to get the hell out of there just as soon as we could.
1: At that time, the the flight mission quota was 34, correct? You guys had to fly a minimum of 34 before you were were considered to uh, head home, correct?
0: No, it was 35. When we first got over there, it was 30. And then they prorated it so that if you had a few missions when they upped them, you didn't have to fly the full 35. And uh, I had flown six missions by the time they did that. So I had to fly a 34. I my uh, number was 34. And then if you flew during your career, once you flew 10 lead missions, lead crews had a higher attrition rate, you got credit for five. So that's how I ended up with 34, and then five less for more than 10 missions. So I had to fly 29.
1: As you got to counting down your missions, that when you got closer to the end, when you got closer to to number twenty-nine, because of the fact that you had flown so many lead missions, did that affect your nerves at all, or did it make it harder, or was it just you know kind of like, hey, that's one less mission, let's get this over with and go home, or was there any superstition that kind of kicked in, saying you know my number's going to come up the closer I get to hitting my quota? No, but
0: I remember our squadron commander was uh a. West Pointer, good friend of mine. By then, after Douglas got shot down he became Squadron commander, and uh, so ended up that we were going to fly our last mission together. And I remember calling him aside and saying, "Listen, well, we re- we flown 29 or how many up to this date? Let's not uh, get a sh- shot down on this last mission." Let's make sure we get on. (laughs) So let's just keep that in mind. So that's the time I actually thought the whole way. This is my last one. If I can make it, I'm I'm through. So yes, that did finally come to pass.
1: Now, during your time in England, I know um, a lot of the um, officers from the Army and other branches of the military, they would oftentimes get almost like an adopted uh, family to live with so that uh, during the downtime, they didn't have to spend so much time, you know, in the bivouac or in a tent. They were able to uh, retire to a, um, a home or something a little more accommodating than a, um, a cornice hut. Or a uh... during your time in England, were you assigned to an adoptive family or did you spend most of your uh, living, your spare time living on base?
0: Yeah, I, I've never heard of that adoptive family. I don't think... Any of our people did that. They all had their own. vision in a Quonset hut. Sure. There. Uh, all the fellows that I could think of lived in Quonset
1: huts. Where was one of your favorite places to visit when you had a little R and R and you got to uh, step away from the base for a little while? Is there a particular place in your mind you can remember going to on uh, some of your downtime?
0: We went to London, mainly.
1: Down a Piccadilly Circus,
0: where all the action
1: was. Yeah, do some hunting while you're over there.
0: We've gone to Scotland to go hunting on our rest and recuperation week halfway through our missions, and uh, but they had a, wed- a wedding scheduled for about the second or third day we were there, so we were uh, we had to leave that hotel. We were trying to find another one. But by then long story that trip to Scotland in itself. Uh, we worked through a travel agent there. And he said, I'll help you fellows how all I can with things to do up here. But he said there's a young lady that I just hired as a guide and if you will let let her guide us guide you on a mission or guide her on a trip you on a trip. Signed you to her. So she, she did it and uh, she was a delightful gal and uh, she lived there in town in Aberdeen with her parents who was a retired engineer from South Africa. So they had an extra bedroom. So Harry and I, they were kind enough to buy us to use their extra bedroom. For the rest of our trip, which we did, that's another story.
1: What game were you yeah. hunting when you're up in Scotland? You guys going for deer, pheasant, quail? What were you What were you guys hunting for? Just anything?
0: Well, what they mainly went for was grouse up there. They would have these big hunting parties with about twenty or thirty people with shotguns, beaters, and they would beat through the bush and. Flush out these grouse, and they would shoot the grouse. Well, we didn't have any of that. We were we were there about a month before hunting season, so uh, they just let us go out and shoot pigeons on <laughs> property.
1: Probably not the same uh, <laughs> level of delicacy between that and the grouse. Yeah, right. But at that point in the warrior was probably still. Uh pretty pretty uh, damn good eating compared to, uh, you know, what you're probably eating back at the uh, base all the time.
0: Well, well, we ate fairly well back at the base. I, I never complained about the food there.
1: Now, during your time during the war and, and flying over Europe and Berlin, and what, did you have anyone back at home waiting on you that you wrote letters to? Did you have a sweetheart back home, or did that come later on after the war? Oh, I had a sweetheart. Did that make you? Did that make it easier to write your? Write a letter
0: almost every day.
1: Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask. If it made it easier to um, to spend your, ta- your down time, your downtime, writing letters home to help you kind of decompress and to um, process everything you went through. But obviously, you probably kept a lot of that to yourself so that you didn't worry the person you're writing to. I would assume. Yeah. Well, I used to
0: write to my folks just to keep them from worrying. You know. You know, not wouldn't keep you from worrying, but help them out a little bit. Sure.
1: Now, I know, as we said before, you had a, um, a quote of how many flights you had to get in. And I know your last mission was on uh, February 23rd. Do you remember that mission and, and uh, what was going through your mind? I know you, you spoke a little bit earlier about uh, talking to a friend of yours about making sure you guys didn't get shot down. Did that mission feel longer than it actually was or longer than any of the previous missions because you knew it was your last
0: no, although it was scheduled to be a longer one it was. It was scheduled to go into Pilsen, Czechoslovakia, which is right at the tip of that bulb of Czechoslovakia that we went into Germany. And uh, by the time we got halfway there, they would called off the mission. I forget why, maybe whether it was too bad or whatever. So we... Actually, we're going to uh, pull the bomb a target of opportunity. And uh, so I called the, up the navigator and I said, okay, we can find a, uh, uh, that day we were bombing railroad stations all, on all our mm, target side of about. So I said, let's find a town in Germany on the way back find a town that's got a, at least two two railroad lines intersecting in it. We'll call it a marshaling yard, and that'll be our target of the community. So we picked a town called Kissingen, Germany, and uh, we bombed that, and there, there were a couple of rail lines there, and we bombed it in and, and a beautiful pattern, beautiful. Drake. And as far as I know, the only time when kitchen was bombed during the war, you got home and it was just very une-
1: uneventful. So, you just completed your last mission. You met your quota. Did you get sent home right away, or was it more of the standard hurry up and wait that the uh, Army is known for? You know, how long were you still in Europe before you finally got to go home after you reached your quota?
0: My last one. I think it was on uh, February 23rd. And I wasn't anxious to get home right away because I wanted the weather to get a little better. And by then, like I said, our squadron commander, the West Pointer, was his last mission too. And he was leaving and I was leaving. And uh, so I said, I'll just stay over for a month or so and uh, let him go home. and." and I'll help out the new guy. By then, they've gotten me a replacement. Yeah, now, so I voluntarily
1: stayed on for another month after I finished
0: my tour.
1: So after that month was up and you finally were heading home, did things seem a lot different back in the States when you got there than than when you left? Obviously, the, the economy was better. Did you feel like the people themselves, the the, the feeling, the apprehension or just daily life. What what was the feeling like when you came home after being gone for so long?
0: Well, you see, by the time I got home, it was the very first part of March, and the rumors were all in when the war was going to be over. What day it was going to be. So that was the main thing going on then nationally. I forget when the war ended,
1: I believe it was March of 45, if I remember correctly.
0: March 45. Oh, oh okay. It ended probably, well, I was...
1: No, I, I apologize. I I was, September I was of 45. The uh, Japanese yeah. uh, delegation formally signed the um, peace treaty on September 2nd, 1945. Yeah. And so after you got home, the war is over. How does one pick up their life? I mean, here you were, you were in college. You are on a mission to obtain your abducted owl. Your beloved mascot, then Pearl Harbor happened, and then your life completely changed. You went from being a, a college student, a young, a young, you know, young man, to uh, returning home. Instead of you know, you left a, a teenager. Now you returned home a man, but you were gone for a few years. How does one just come home and pick up their life after experiencing that?
0: Well, personally, I thought then that we were going to end up in war with Russia. I was convinced of that for a long time.
1: If Patton had his way, you guys would have been.
0: Well, I joined the Air Force Reserve and kept flying out of McCord Field. And I I always felt that sooner or later I'd get called up again to go fight the Russians.
1: But instead, that never happened. We, you know, obviously we went into the Cold War. How long did you stay part of the Reserves and what did you do in the Reserves?
0: Well, I went on summer two-week duty where you'd actually go back in for two weeks, get paid and everything.
1: What were you doing in your civilian life when you weren't reporting to the base to put in your two weeks to meet the requirements of the uh, Air Force Reserve?
0: By then, I'd gone into the insurance brokerage business. And uh, along came the Korean War and they started calling up a lot of us. And I was, thinking of the possibility of uh, just voluntarily coming back in. But along the way, a friend of mine and I, in college after the war, had gone into the FBI and uh, he was home home one day and I went and had lunch with him. And he really liked the FBI been in Detroit, uh, his first field office. And he was in, and he offered to pay his own way to Anchorage, Alaska. They other a field office up there. And uh, he offered to pay his own way to get transferred up there. So he was moving up to Alaska at the time. When he described the Bureau, I thought I might interested in that. And I looked into it more and more. And finally, that actually, during the Korean War, when I did go into the FBI and got out of the insurance business and stayed with the Bureau for two years till I ended up in New York City and got married. And
1: how old were you when you got out of the FBI and you started to settle down a little bit and met your wife?
0: I was 48 when I got married.
1: So you're you're pretty much well established. You 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 know you spent time in the war. Um, you joined the FBI and did the insurance thing. What did what did you do after the FBI?
0: I was sportsman enough that I was well connected in insurance this way. I went to you know, finish the university, got a, two degrees in engineering mechanical engineering, and uh, industrial engineering. And that led into uh, working for the Rating Bureau and you know, all that sort of thing. So at any rate, once I decided to leave the FBI, I wrote, this insurance in workers and said, and told them I was coming home, would they be interested in hiring? Well, they were, so. I can I was resigned from the Bureau. Came to work for Although Hayes the name of the burgers firm and was for them for the rest of my career.
1: Well, Mr. Anderson, I definitely appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your story with us and um, thank you for everything you did. And um I just can't express my sense of gratitude for you taking time out of your day and sitting down and, uh, and talking with me for an hour or so.
0: Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I got hit. I, I know things to talk about when it comes to World War II.
1: Enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much, Mr. Anderson.
0: Well, you're very welcome.
1: And that is going to wrap it up for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. Once again, thank you guys for your patience on uh, the fact that it's been over a month since we posted an episode. Good news, I have another interview already in the can. I just got to get to editing that. So the follow-up episode of this one should only be a week away, maybe a week and a half. But I would be doing myself and the listening audience a great disservice if I didn't give a shout-out and a thank you to the great... To the great Christoph de Geiter, pardon me Christoph if I didn't say your last name properly. Uh, Christoph is the one who contacted me and brought the contact information for Mr. Keith Anderson over to me. He said, hey, I'm currently working on a book. Um, The first version will be out in February. I think you might be interested in uh, some of these guys and he sent me the information for uh, Mr. Anderson. But the book that's coming out in February and we'll have Christoph on then is called Flying Fortress. Harry Powell's crew. It's all about the 398th. Um, please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com I will have a link to the 398th reunion at Norfolk, Virginia as well as uh, photos of the book cover to the upcoming book. But once again, Christoph, thank you so much for bringing Mr. Anderson's story to my attention and uh, more importantly hooking me up with some contacts to uh, get this interview out to you guys And I hope you all enjoyed it. And if you're listening to this episode or any of our prior episodes, obviously you have to be listening to this episode to hear this. But um, if you're listening and you say, hey, I know some people who were there. I wonder if they'd be interested in doing an interview. Ask them. And if they're even remotely curious... Send the information my way. I will reach out to them. I will set up all the interview stuff. Um, You can let them know how I do this is I am as accommodating to them as possible. The way I see it, they're going out of their way. They're giving me their time, their story, their history. And so I do everything in my power to make this interview as easy on them as possible. I set it up around their time schedule, around their availability. Um, It doesn't matter what time of day, time of night, whatever works for them, I will make it work for me. And so if you have any uh, people you would like to have on this show, whether they're World War II vets, um, the wives or daughters of World War II vets, or someone who's an author themselves or working on a World War II-based project, simply send us an email to info at wtspworldwar2.com or send me a private message on our Facebook page. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you soon. This has been a Digital 410 production.